Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, I'm Daniel Caparelli, um, Director of the Trade and Manufacturing Practice at Global Council. Today, we will be discussing the outcome of the um, 12th Ministerial Conference of the World Trade Organization, or MC12, that concluded uh, last Friday. Um, joining me today are John Cook, who is co-chair of the Liberalization of Trade and Services Group at the City UK, Tiffany McDonald, who is a senior advisor and in the Trade and Manufacturing Practice at Global Council, and uh, Yifang Li, who's an associate in the same practice at JC. Uh, we will uh, be discussing the outcome of uh, MC12, and in particularly what this means for the future of uh, the deal-making function of the World Trade Organization, uh, and in particular, the implications of the outcome of last uh, week's ministerial for businesses and the liberalization agenda. So it was the first ministerial in a very long time, in almost five years, that took place. Uh, a lot has changed since the previous ministerial. We have today two members at war. We have uh, underwent a significant period of disruption in international trade caused by the COVID pandemic. And we are in the midst, uh, I would say today, of a uh, decoupling process between two of the biggest economies in the world, uh, China and the US, and increasingly a sense that strategic competition between these two powers is shaping the trade agenda rather than uh, liberalization thrust of the heydays of the WTO. At the opening of the ceremony last week, Director General Okonjo Iwela commented that one or two deals uh, at the ministerial would constitute a benchmark of success. After a marathon of meetings and uh, delays in the conclusion uh, of the ministerial. At four o'clock in the morning on Friday, two days after the ministerial was set to conclude, the WTO Director General announced essentially four outcomes. A extension of the e-commerce moratorium, a deal on fisheries subsidies, a, a deal on a waiver of uh, IP for uh, COVID vaccines, and a pathway of reform for the institution in the road to MC13. Today, we will be discussing what this means for the multilateral trading system and more importantly, the relevance of this outcome for both the institution and businesses uh, worldwide. So if I may just start with you, John, in what sense would you characterize the outcome of the ministerial as success? Well, Daniel, thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me here. And let me just say that the views I express are my own, of course, and not necessarily those of the City UK. Um, I think we have to characterize this outcome as a success, particularly when measured against the fears that there were 
before MC12 convened, that uh, there might really be no agreement on anything at all, and that uh, there would simply be divergence between the major players in what, at the end of the day, is a consensus organization in the WTO. So I would count it a success. And where do you think the outcome falls short of expectations? Obviously, agriculture is the main area where um, it represented a big agenda item for MC12. And there were a number of, of areas of agricult on agricultural support, on market access, uh, and food stocks, where no agreement could be reached. The position was simply too far apart. Um, otherwise, I think the other area where one has to qualify the success is that um, in much of what was done, there was a confirmation of the status quo on, say, the moratorium on um, electro oh, customs duties on electronic transmissions and on the continuation of the work program. I think there was also not quite a continuation of the status quo, but no huge advance in a number of other areas, such as WTO reform, where ministers agreed on a on a potential roadmap for taking the issue forward. But I think there were no specific ideas on on how to take it forward. Um, the only other comment I would make, I think, on the success or failure of, of uh, this ministerial conference was that it was a ministerial conference exceptionally that took place um, in quite narrow confines. The it took place at the WTO, so it was only in one location, unlike a number of other ministerials which have been spread across several locations. And as a result, officials could work very closely together in contiguous rooms to bring about the bargain that was eventually struck on a nothing is agreed until everything is agreed basis. We would need to see equal successes in future ministerials in the way they're negotiated if we're to maintain the dynamic that was achieved at this one. And and do you think that this sets um, kind of a roadmap for reviving the new the deal making function of the WCO? Uh, I mean, this bringing together negotiators all in the same place and making sure that they're able to do the typical horse trading that you know, constitute and characterizes all the successful ministerials that we had in the past? Well, I would say that that is quite important. After all, the WTO has steadily grown. It's now 164 members. That's a very big number for a consensus organization where each member speaks entirely for themselves. There are no representative groups of members, hardly, in this negotiation. So I think the stage management of future ministerials to enable a complex number of deals to be put together is going to be very important. And my experience from some past 
ministerials. The, I mean, Seattle is a classic example of taking place in different buildings. And so, in fact, uh, was, I think, the last one that took place in Geneva, which was ranged across more than one building. That's not really conducive to bringing people closely together in a way that looks as if it was very important at this ministerial. Tiffany, let me turn to you now. Do you agree with John's assessment? I mean, um, Okonjo Iwela, at the end of the ministerial, described the success of the meeting in terms of showing that uh, geopolitical fault lines uh, did not really uh, define the discussions, but rather a sense of community, of bringing uh, everybody together with a view to address existing challenges that we have out there. I mean, there was, I mean, I think that what she was trying to get at is that right in the middle of a war where there are clear divisions between members of the institution, these members were able to put this aside and come together and trying to find a solution for current problems. Do you agree with that view? Well, thank you, Daniel. And can I start by saying how delighted I am to be uh, sharing views with such an esteemed panel uh, today. And just to flag that whilst I've been an Australian diplomat for quite some time, all of the views that I express today are purely my own. Um, look, I do agree. As you said, uh, Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala said, it showed, the outcome showed that members could come together across geopolitical fault lines to address problems of global commons and to reinforce and reinvigorate the institution. So there's two pieces to that. They're coming together across geopolitical fault lines. I think she's right and I agree with John and picking up on what you said earlier, Daniel. The Director General described it as a polycrisis. There are so many uh, challenges, global challenges facing us at the moment and no one member can solve these issues on its own. I think if you think about the WTO um, being an organisation that needs to make decisions by consensus, then there's some really positive strands that we can draw from this. The US and China, as you mentioned in your opening comments, strategic competition is sharpening between the world's two largest economies. On the TRIPS waiver, around vaccines, the eligibility criteria came down to the US and China having to find an outcome that they could both agree uh, and take back to their countries. I think that it was something that was achieved very late in the day, but ultimately they achieved it. India, India, you know, could have blocked, um, but it didn't. And, you know, potentially it demonstrates the importance of the US, the EU and the UK uh, wanting to find a way to work with India. UK, this was the first time that the UK had been uh, at the WTO post-Brexit and it was important to establish itself as a player. We'll dive into this in more detail, I'm sure, around the TRIPS waiver, but ultimately it was the UK that was the last country taking a particular position and uh, it then decided to join consensus. And I think the, the very important point... Um, 
um, on these geopolitical fault lines uh, and not to not to overstate how much was uh, agreed. But the Ukraine and Russia both were in the room and there were different ways of negotiating because of that. Ultimately, the whole group, the 164 member states all agreed. So I think it does show that there are ways that the WTO can contribute to working across geopolitical fault lines. To the second point, does it reinvigorate the WTO? Mm, I'm less I'm less optimistic about that. Uh, I think it's certainly the outcome of MC12 saves it from accusations of irrelevance. Uh, if it had not agreed, if it had not delivered one or two, which was, we know, the Director General's goal at the beginning, but instead it delivered four out of the six, that would have been a real problem. I think that um, it laid a pathway going forward. It demonstrated it could uh, it could find uh, some landing landing zones. The real test, the rubble will hit the road. Uh, however, when ministers go back uh, to their countries and then uh, reflect the, what was agreed back to their own constituencies, and we'll um, no doubt talk about that in more detail. So, so essentially, what we're saying is that it is it is a positive outcome. It shows that consensus can still be reached on some, at least on some narrow questions, that there needs to be, however, um, some sort of uh, rethink on how these rounds take place and are managed. Uh, for good or for worse, uh, I, I would think that a uh, more activist DG uh, was able to focus people's minds. But the question that I wanted to ask here is the so what? I mean, uh, a lot of people were, were saying before and during the ministerial that any deal would be better than no deal exactly for the reasons that you mentioned if any for in in the context of accusations around the relevance of the WTO as an institution equipped to address challenges uh, of the 21st century or crisis or however you want to paint the the usefulness of the WTO but the question is uh, if we go back to the WTO core objective, which was a sense of rulemaking and enforcement of liberalization commitments on trade uh, and the regulation of uh, trade regimes at the multilateral level. I think that the outcome of of this ministerial is back to the questions of so what for businesses, right? And this is one of the things that I wanted to essentially uh, talk to, to both uh, you, John, and Yifang now, uh, what does the outcome of the ministerial mean for businesses? John, in particular, when is any deal better than no deal? Is something better than nothing? Or are there outcomes that can be problematic when agreed at the multilateral level? I mean, I think to take the particular example of... of of MC12, we can point clearly to a deal being better than no deal. I mean, no deal, for instance, on the electronic commerce work program and on the moratorium would have threatened to completely alter the terms of trade, particularly as regards the moratorium, on a, a growing area of, of international trade and to open the way for there to be a fresh class of barriers on services business delivered electronically. So I think there one has to say that it was 
better to have the deal that we had that at least uh, renewed these features for a further period than to have no deal and fail to continue those features. That said, I think the outcome is problematic in the sense that there's a growing sense, certainly on the moratorium, that there needs to be a fresh approach to the whole question of whether it should be open to countries to derive revenues from electronically delivered goods and services. The issue isn't going away. I don't think one can continue to fight the battle on simply the same grounds as led up to to MC12. I'm not sure what Catherine Tai meant when she said that this is the last renewal of the moratorium, whether she actually meant that was an American viewpoint or whether she meant whether she was simply echoing what some other spokesman was saying as their point, I simply don't know. But I think whatever it means, the challenge will be to develop new arguments about these things and new ways of trying to harness like-minded countries together. This is always the problem of the WTO, I think, that it is a negotiating body, but it's not really a thinking or policy-making body. And we have now reached the point where there needs to be a fresh infusion of thought into this area and maybe into a number of other areas too. And the question is, where will that thought come from? Will it come from think tanks? Will it come from business? Could it come from OECD, which has already done quite a lot of work on a lot of these issues. But that, I think, is the is the challenge, and it's the challenge for business, too, of how to make a better input into um, what's being discussed. I mean, I think that what you're talking about here is um, essentially kind of the power of ideas in driving an agenda. A question that I have for you is, is... Is that sufficient to continue to drive liberalization over the next decade or so? Or are we essentially uh, having you know, to come to terms with the fact that the dynamics uh, of the policymaking process around that liberalization has fundamentally changed? The moratorium being a prime example here, you mentioned that Catherine Tai could have made that point as a recognition of the state of play of the politics around the moratorium, or essentially it could simply be a position to be taken in future negotiations, a recognition that the price of that moratorium can ultimately become too expensive to barter with in future talks. We do need to realise that the motivations for liberalisation have changed or at least beginning to change. I mean, I think that in both the GATT and the WTO, there was until very recently a historic folk memory going all the way back to Smoot-Hawley tariffs before the war and a common view that beggar-my-neighbor protectionism was not good and did not lead to wealth creation. It was, of course, always a view that was tempered by views such as protecting infant industries or uh, issues of those kinds. But in general, I think the belief was that in the long run, liberalization of trade, certainly when countries were able to compete 
having developed a certain level of industry, um, these were good things. I'm not sure that that's any longer the case. There are too many very large players with different values. I'm not going to say that it's just China that has a different value and is, is creating unfair competition. It's also the decline of the United States as an economic power, which is bringing about a change of attitude, just as the decline of the UK a 100 years ago brought about a change of attitude to tariff reform and imperial preferences, which is another version of trading with your friends or friend shoring in some way. So I think we have to face the fact that these, these issues are in play in whatever the future uh, will bring. I don't think they negate the case for liberalization, but they mean that liberalization has to be explained and defined and that common ground has to be achieved in making the case for it and not expecting that the case is simply self-evident as perhaps we did expect for you know, the first 70 years after the war. That's very interesting. And I think a good segue into a question for Yifang on the other big high-profile outcome of the ministerial, the TRIPS waiver uh, deal that was um, sealed at in the early hours of, of Friday last week. It is a deal that some some critics accuse of upending some of the basic rules enshrined in the TRIPS agreement at the WTO, the protection of intellectual property rights. But it's a deal that at the same time has been heavily criticized by civil society and developing countries alike, uh, who said that the deal did not go farther enough. And so you find that one of the main outcomes of the ministerial fails to win support from either sides of the debate. Ifang, let me just ask you to start by explaining what was at stake in these negotiations that were launched uh, almost two years ago. Uh, what were the objectives and what has been achieved? Yeah, um, Daniel, so uh, what is at stake here is the intellectual property framework. So the objective was for the protection of intellectual property rights to be suspended to allow countries to ramp up local productions of vaccines, therapeutics, and other products necessary to combat the COVID-19. And the concept was reflected in a proposal from India and South Africa at the WTO at the time to improve vaccine equity and solve the pressing issue of vaccine shortages. And if we take a step back, to be honest, Daniel, the TRIPS waiver is never an end by itself. Negotiations related to intellectual property have traditionally been used by governments like India to put pressure on pharmaceutical companies as an attempt to seek their compromise on contentious negotiations such as pricing and voluntary licensing. And this drove the TRIPS discussions at the Doha round, and the same concept continued to detect the current negotiations uh, in the ministerial conference. As an example, South Africa was calling for a biotech sovereignty in the lead up to a ministerial conference. That's interesting, Yifang. Uh, but what was uh, initiated two years ago different from what was achieved in the end last week? 
Uh, initially, this is scheduled, as we discussed it, uh, to suspend the intellectual property right protection. But essentially, what we achieved here is to improve and facilitate the implementation of compulsory licensing. So compulsory licensing is an existing mechanism in the WTO TRIPS agreement. And this instrument means that the government can allow uh, someone else to produce a patented product or a process without the consent of the patent owner. So at the ministerial conference, uh, flexibilities are added to ensure that the implementation of the compulsory licensing become easier. So this is reflected in two aspects. The first aspect is that notification requirements are relaxed. So now countries don't have to notify before import, and uh, now they can notify as soon as possible. And the second aspect is re-exportation. So now re-exportation is possible in exceptional circumstances for humanitarian and not-for-profit purposes. So we say that there's quite a strong difference between uh, suspending intellectual property right as originally proposed it to what we have now as uh, facilitating the implementation of an existing mechanism in the TRIPS agreement. So we can essentially characterize the deal as a clarification of existing provisions and perhaps some tweaking of the flexibilities around that. I mean, I think what is interesting to me uh, from the deal is the fact that nobody, whether you are in favor or against the TRIPS waiver, believes that the outcome answers a current policy problem. For uh, a long time, the arguments behind the deal uh, were built around the need to improve vaccine equity when the equity problem was one of availability. The argument went that uh, most of the COVID vaccines in its first batches were uh, acquired by developed countries and developing countries had to wait far too long to receive those vaccines. However, over the past six or seven months, the diagnostic of the problem has fundamentally transformed. We are today no longer in a situation where you have a scarcity problem, but rather a oversupply of vaccines, which uh, because of problems in the delivery systems of health systems in developing countries are not able to get from the tarmac to the arms of, of patients. Um, so what do you make, Yifang, about the fact that the deal that failed to materialize for the past two years and has been agreed last week, is a deal that uh, provides very little immediate benefit for developing countries trying to increase vaccination levels in their countries. Daniel, I think uh, I would definitely agree with this assessment. And I think we could uh, elaborate this further in two aspects. So I think the first aspect is that the solution we have right now uh, has a long-term implication on the intellectual property framework at the multilateral level as well as national uh, levels. So although some, such as the UK trade minister, uh, would argue that this decision at the WTO was not about waiving IP rights, uh, the deal itself still implies a strong message that uh, intellectual property protection is a barrier to vaccine equity. 
And we can start to see the same concept of IP being a waiver emerges at national level. Earlier this year, uh, we saw that there is a draft amendment to install the TRIPS waiver in the UK Health and Care Bill. And we can also see IP waiver is now being explored as a solution to the medicine shortage in Ukraine. So you can see this concept of backpedaling the intellectual property protection emerging at the WTO and also at the national levels. And the second aspect that we can look at uh, is, as you mentioned, Daniel, the intellectual property protection or uh, the vaccine shortage is no longer a problem. And the WTO Director General and almost all negotiators in Geneva have admitted that vaccine supply is no longer an issue, yet these top diplomats spent days and nights in Geneva to search for a solution to a problem that no longer exists. And they could have invested their time to explore the more pressing issue, as you suggested, which is essentially how trade can help improve the healthcare infrastructure at the last mile of vaccine delivery. And the odd thing is that this uh, decision would apply for five years, potentially outrunning the current pandemic. So now what we have here is that ministerial conference achieved a solution to a problem that no longer exists at the cost of a long-term damage to a legal framework, which was critical to innovation. So this would be uh, the long-term consequences I would be worried about, given the outcome of the ministerial conference. And surely we we should also pay very close attention to how uh, this sets a precedence for other ongoing negotiations, notably those uh, at the WHO around a pandemic um, preparedness treaty, which also look into how IP frameworks could be relaxed as part of a response to future crises. Uh, John, let me just uh, bring back the conversation to you and try to get your sense about the wider services agenda in terms of what happens next. What do you think needs to happen uh, for there to be new momentum behind behind services liberalization, both generally, but also focusing uh, our minds ahead of uh, the road to MC13. Well, thank you. First of all, I, I should say I was very impressed by the way Ifang just put this, um, the risk of negotiating on a problem that no longer exists. And... Um, at the same time threatening a framework for innovation i think you know this this is the kind of thing that could very well prove to be true in the services area too i mean we are looking probably above all in the future in services at the new digital age and the need to find international regimes that really work for digital trade um it could be said that the focus on data protection as against free movement of data is looking at a problem that I won't say it no longer exists, but I think everybody admits that there needs to be a solution to the, the narrow problem of personal data protection. That's not the issue in contention. The issue in contention is how can data be made easier to move as we move to new cloud-based worlds where you know this is the way in which 
innovation, and much of it innovation that could affect the competitiveness of small and medium-sized enterprises is going to come in the future. So I see a kind of exact analogy with, with the kind of terms in which Ifang was was putting this. And this is where I do see the big challenge in looking ahead. Where is the real thought on what should happen in order to liberalize services trade, lots of it digitally delivered? Where is that thought going to come from? I don't think it's going to come from the European Union's focus on GDPR. I don't think it's going to come from the Indian domestic focus on data as the new oil. I mean, these are not concepts that um, can be, that really are fruitful in terms of international trade. And it could need a kind of, well, I hesitate to say a new Bretton Woods conference, because that would be a, a huge thing. But there needs to be the creation of a framework of thought on these issues, which members of the WTO and in the States generally can decide how far they wish to buy into it. And at present, I see that as, as not there. It's absent. And it is the real challenge for the services agenda in the future. The other real challenges, of course, are more minor ones, but, but very important, like mutual recognition of regulatory regimes. But those issues I see as soluble and probably soluble by, in fact, breaking down what the regulatory regime is for. I mean, a regulatory regime that sets standards of soundness of financial services providers, that to some extent can be a set of international standards. A regime that is about mutual recognition of, say, tax professionals, there are no international tax standards. Well, there are some, but I mean, a tax professional to practice in another country must know the tax framework of that country in some detail. And so there one will get, one has to have a different approach, it seems to me. But again, there needs to be a bigger volume of work than the so far has been on how to solve these problems. I mean, I think that one of the implications of what you're saying is one that we're very familiar with. And I think that we've struggled over the past two decades to come up with a version of it, which is a coalition of the willing that is able to drive an agenda in the same way that Bretton Woods, as you made a reference to, drove the kind of the post-war rulemaking at the multilateral, but if you really think at a time, plurilateral. So my question to you is, do you think that the future of trade liberalization is inevitably plurilateral in nature uh, and multilateralized after the fact? I think that it probably is. I mean, there has to be, as in most kinds of reform, you may start with a minority of one or a minority of a few, and you have to gain traction for ideas which are attractive. And those who are not convinced by them have to be able to see that they are ideas that work and then hopefully join with them. But just doesn't seem to me likely that one will have innovative ideas that are going to be shared at once by 164 states. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
it's not the way life works. Tiffany, what do you think about that? I mean, from a trade craft point of view, what do you think lies ahead? What is the solution in part to the services questions, but also I think from a more kind of pragmatic standpoint when it comes to the geopolitical risks that are likely to continue to shape the uh, kind of international global community in the decades ahead. Where do you think we are headed from a trade point of view? Thank you, Daniel. I hate to be the, the ray of sunshine in this otherwise gloomy assessment, but I actually think, you know, I I hear what you're saying and I, I can understand the basis upon which all of those assessments are made. But I, I think the counter view is that uh, if we circle back to the last time the WTO ministers met in Buenos Aires, they couldn't even commit to agreeing to reaffirm the importance of the rules-based multilateral trading system. That's how wide the trust deficit was and that's how sort of far they'd got to following the breakdown of the Doha development round. Uh, I think fast forward to the week that we've just had and all the points that we've um, heard expressed in this discussion around whether or not the agreements solve the problems they were seeking to solve or whether they go far enough or, or not far enough or whether they've really addressed the complexities of the, the issues at hand as, as John's pointed to in, in relation to, to services and e-commerce and so forth. I still think that what we take from it is that we've had a demonstration uh, at a political level that the participants, the member states, have, have agreed that the WTO and the multilateral system is important uh, and important enough for them to risk a bit of uh, political backlash in their own uh, domestic constituencies for a variety of reasons, but uh, willing enough to, to agree to, to some things that maybe will be um, require some domestic diplomacy to sell when they get back um, to their home countries. And I think it also um, demonstrates it can be done at a multilateral level. I think it's easier at a plurilateral level and certainly plurilateral or bilateral uh, trade liberalisation is where most of the activity has happened after over the last decade or so. But I think there's a kernel of positivity to take from the WTO ministerial and that is that there was a political signal from all of the members that they were invested enough to continue uh, along that process. John, what do you say to that? Well, I don't actually think that those two ideas, you know, that idea and what I was saying are in conflict. I wasn't uh, trying to say that the future, say, for what happened on services, you know, could proceed independently of a belief in the um, in the multilateral system. There, is, there has got to be a belief in the multilateral system. I think my thought was rather that where innovations in policy are going to come, they are likely to start with plurilateral approaches of like-minded WTO members and then be extended. I mean, they need to be extended so that one would hope the majority of WTO members or all WTO members would subscribe to them. So I wasn't trying to set up a conflict <laughs> between plurilateral and multilateral in that sense. 
I should just add that I also think that, you know, the, the future of solutions on, say, what should happen to the moratorium on customs duties on electronic transmission, the future has got to be worked out in some rational way. It shouldn't be a matter of saying, say, if you're India, we will agree to another 18-month extension, provided that we get something on vaccines. I mean, this is not the way in which a rules-based system can actually advance. I mean, I know there's going to be an element of nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, but making ideas interdependent in that way is not a way of securing their future, it seems to me. Isn't that the bedrock of the single undertaking? Are you saying that the single undertaking is over? No, I think we're likely to go on having single undertakings. They're a traditional thing. But it's difficult to know how to put this. A big idea, like whether or not the WTO should countenance a fresh class of restriction on trade in electronically delivered goods and services. That sort of big idea, and whether it succeeds or not, is is not really a, a matter of whether there's a quid pro quo in a completely different area. We we have to try and find better ways of reaching agreed decisions on, on that sort of thing, even if all members have to feel when it comes to a ministerial that they can take away something that they will sell at home. I suppose the other way of putting it is it's not going to be successful to block a big idea on condition, you know, unless another member gets something in a different area. This There's a predicament here that needs to be solved in the way the multilateral system really works. So it's about making the single undertaking work for liberalization, not for stopping the liberalization. Yes, I think it's a single undertaking is fine. Well, let's take the European example. For instance, in the EU, there is often a single undertaking at the end of a ministerial council, but it's based on the assumption that everyone in some ways shares the their adherence to the European project. If they really don't, then what can be achieved starts to break down or is, is a bargain of a rather shabby kind between different areas. That's food for thought comparing the future of the WTO with the European project. Uh, I I would like to thank you, uh, Tiffany and Yifang, for today. Um, as always, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to the ups and downs of uh, multilateral liberalization or deliberalization, as uh, we have been discussing in the case of the potential uh, expiration of the e-commerce tariff moratorium, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for myself, Ifang, and Tiffany, and our sectoral teams at the GC website on www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.